This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hello, hi everyone, welcome to the show and today I'm joined with Nick and Teresa that run the Sailing Ruby Rose YouTube channel. Nick, Teresa, thanks for being a guest on the show. Thanks so much, Mike. So talk to us a bit about how you came up with the name of your channel and also, because I know that it's in also the name of your boat. So talk to us a bit about how that came about. So Ruby Rose uh, is the name of our first boat um, and Ruby was Nick's grandmother's name and Rose was my grandmother's name as well as my mother's middle name and my middle name. So it was a bit of a family name on my side um, and we just thought it had a nice little ring to it. So when it came time to uh, start our YouTube channel, which we started just out of a hobby, we just, you know, selling Ruby Rose was just a natural name for the YouTube channel. So that's, that's, it's a really yeah. simple story. Haven't yet been sued by the Australian pop star yeah. over, for uh, <laughs> use of the uh, the name, but I figured that seeing as my grandmother was born in 1915, she probably gets dibs on the, uh, on, on, on first use. Yeah. Some royalties somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> So how, how did the, the channel start? Was it just, did one of you decide and then the, the other one was sort of like, well, I'll, I'll jump on it or was it a, a group decision? No, it was kind of my project to start with. I wanted something creative to keep my kind of mind occupied and something that would intellectually stimulate me. So, you know, we'd been sailing for about 18 months um, by that point, we'd been living on board full time and sailing. We'd covered about 10,000 miles, so it had been pretty full on. And I had a blog that I kept um, at the time. I was kind of writing a blog post a couple of times a week, um, getting into photography through my website. And I just kind of wanted to push myself a bit further and take on another project. So I started the YouTube channel and, you know, Nick was a willing participant, but I think I was the main driving force behind it to begin with. Uh, as I said, it started off kind of as a way of showing our families and friends what we were up to and it wasn't really something we took too seriously. And then when we started kind of realising that people who we had never met before were becoming interested in what we were doing and what we had to say and we realised that we actually had a wealth of information that, that was genuinely useful to a lot of people who might be looking at doing the same thing that we were doing, living on a boat and sailing around the world, then we started taking it more seriously. And um, at that point, you know, a, a YouTube channel cannot be run just by one person. It's, it's definitely a full-time job for both of us. So, and in fact, we um, also have to outsource some, some work to, to others. So we are both fully involved in these things and then some. So you mentioned that Nick was willing. Did you have to twist his arm at first or was it something? Uh, she still does. There's still, there's still <laughs> twisting of the arm and other aspects of my body. Uh, I think <laughs> the thing is it started like, I, I kind of, Teresa's right. We There was something missing in what we were doing and I think from my point of view, and we've talked to a lot of other YouTube sailing channels, like running a boat is a full-time job. It, it Like the amount of maintenance it needs, even a new boat. So I was kind of like always tied up with the boat. So, you know, the, the you know in video production, you've got to film the video and then edit the video. So I was happy to be on camera. video, on camera, you know, the, the kind of 
the the latent media whore that resides in me kind of like popped out like and so yeah I'm happy to be on camera but when it comes to the editing um you know I was reluctant and I'm still a little bit reluctant and I think the thing is Teresa is so much better at editing than me I kind of like it's easy for me to defer that to her but now I kind of like we have so many different aspects to what we do that's not just the just making YouTube videos that I'm kind of tied up with other bits um as much as Teresa's with editing so was it an awkward first video because I imagine Teresa sort of like with blogging initially taking pictures it probably wasn't as big of a, a transition so go on how bad was the first attempt I think it was actually you know what funnily enough we, we re-watched it again only I think last year we did. We rewatched it yeah, last year did. together because we had this idea that we would kind of do a commentary for our patrons. We have a Patreon page and we have some amazing patrons and we thought it would be fun to kind of revisit episode one and, and do like a commentary on it. And it actually was fun. And I was surprised. I was dreading it. I was really cringing. But I must say it wasn't as bad as I had been expecting. Yeah. So I'm quite, I look back and I think, actually, that wasn't too bad. I like to think I've come a long way um, in my video production and my editing skills, which I have. But um, yeah, it was it was okay actually. It was okay. Yeah, look, I think uh, for the the editing has got a lot better. I think that Teresa and I both used to have jobs where we had to face the public, so it's not like we were stuck in an office and had difficult. You know, I was used to be a dentist, so my job was facing dealing with like nervous patients and trying to build a practice. I was kind of used to dealing with people that strangers and trying to make them at ease. Putting me in front of a camera wasn't a problem. So I don't think it was that wooden at the time. What do you think? No, so? I don't think it was. And we had done some kind of pre preparation. Yeah. We had done a couple of test runs um, just to get us comfortable in front of the camera, which obviously never saw the light of day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we practiced and it was okay. I mean, I think we've gotten better, but it wasn't as terrible as what some people might expect. And some other channels may have popped up with uh, their, their stuff. No, we, I don't think it was wooden at all. No, it was okay. But, you know, we can't be the judge of our own work. Yeah, no. if you're listening to this podcast, check it out. <laughs> let us know. <laughs> check out number one and let us know because uh, it's our baby. We think it's amazing. Uh, you <laughs> no. So what's it like? with the the actual video production then is it is it a documentary kind of scenario where you just live your life and someone else is holding the camera have you got to hire someone to do it because you know if there's only two of you then one of you has to hold the camera right so how how do you actually do the the videos yeah it I tell you what, it would be a lot easier if we had a camera person. Um, I would love that. No, we have to do it all ourselves. So we film it, we film everything ourselves, and it really does take some creativity and uh, thinking outside the box to work out how to film ourselves and keep it interesting. You know, you're always trying to think about where you can put the camera, where you can mount a camera. You know, what kind of angles might look good, and it's hard as you know, anyone who's tried to make a, a video is aware to actually film yourself. It's, it's not easy. And that's compounded by the fact that we are on a boat, which is always moving. So you can't really put the camera down and expect it to stay where you put it because invariably it will fall off if you, it's not secure. So no, we film everything ourselves and, uh, you know, it's um, sometimes challenging. We, we, uh, 
damaged our camera just the other day yeah. <laughs> doing it. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's, it is what it is and we've kind of gotten quite practised at it now. And in terms of what we film, we do tend to do mainly lifestyle content. So it is essentially kind of documenting our lifestyle, um, the different kind of aspects and elements that make up living on a boat. So it's not just sailing obviously that's part of it but it's also the boat maintenance side of things it is the traveling um exploring the destinations that we go to it's the planning stages it's the navigation um and invariably you know when you are at the mercy of the elements then things tend to go wrong um so it's about kind of showing what happens when things aren't going particularly well and how we problem solve and troubleshoot and kind of work our way through those issues so we try and make it kind of like a fly on the wall kind of uh, experience for the viewer. Um, it's obviously we try and kind of keep it the quality as high as we possibly can manage. Um, but we try and, you know, at the end of the day, we want the viewer to feel like they're there with us. And certainly the feedback that we've always had has been very positive in that regard. We also have a series um, that kind of runs in parallel to our what we call our vlog type episodes that are more kind of technical, how-to, um, informative type of content. So we have, for example, a number of technical episodes where one of us um, kind of breaks down like a certain component of living on the boat, a more technical component, and explains it and, you know, kind of shows the audience how to perhaps fix something or how to set a system up or, you know, boat different elements of boat maintenance, that kind of thing. And we also did uh, a series of catamaran reviews. So we did 19 catamaran reviews, um, in-depth reviews, and they were very popular as well. So we kind of have two strands to our, our content. So you mentioned that you, you both had jobs beforehand um, and you decided to, uh, to travel full, was it? around 18 months was it before you started the channel How, why did you decide to travel at all because if if you're a dentist doing reasonably well what was the thought process behind jumping on a boat and deciding to travel the world um okay so firstly Teresa and I met when we were uh, we were traveling. So we we both met in India about 12 years ago, just backpacking. So we had this kind of love of travel that was not non-conventional. So kind of roughing it really. And honestly, dentistry for me, it was, I always wanted to do it. I spent, you know, five happy years in Liverpool uh, studying. Um, and I, it was, it was something I wanted to do for years, but I guess the thing about that is that I had my own practice in London, but it, Dentistry is, you know, probably you can make you make money pretty quickly. It's a pretty good career pathway, but money just was never. It didn't make me happy. It, it didn't. And so, I remember going to a dental uh, conference, and literally everyone's talking about golf handicaps and what Mercedes they're going to buy next. And dentists really are, in many cases, as tedious as they you think they are. And so, this kind of whole you know, acquisition of wealth thing just wasn't doing it for me. You know, you buy one sports car, the next one's just the same thing. So I didn't really want to kind of like hang around with dentists and talk about money all the time. So about 15 years ago, I decided to buy a boat and learn to sail. And I literally went and bought 
like a really cheap grotty boat that you know was 40 years old needed a lot of work and my kind of like I worked out that you know if I didn't get on with it I'd sell the boat again and wouldn't bankrupt myself and if I sunk the boat or set fire to it I wouldn't bankrupt myself and I bought the boat in a little village in Kent um and I said to the marina owner when I bought the boat, Look, can I keep the boat here? Because I've never, I can't sail. I've got to learn from scratch. And she was like, yeah, whatever. And that community of people that genuinely didn't give a stuff about how much money I had, about what I did, about they didn't care about cars or anything like that. They were very, very uh, welcoming. And the whole community centered around sailing. And at that point, I realized that actually I'm getting far more out of this life than my life in London. Um, and so every, you know, I kind of like moved my entire social life down to Kent. I'd sail like every weekend. I'd just holiday. This is before I met Therese. And it kind of like, yeah, it kind of reinforced that actually what I, what I got from sailing wasn't so much the sport, but the actual community. It's interesting that you bring that up. And then, you, so you, you travel full time as well. Do do sailors have like a club? Do you meet up like in the ocean and say, "Oh, hey, we bump each other mid"? You know, it's it's not it isn't like dog walking, right? Where you meet each other same sort of. All right, you were saying dogging. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> it isn't like dog walking where you meet each other. <laughs> same path right i imagine like sailing you don't really bump boats and go oh fancy seeing you here um i think that there's a very famous surfer called kelly slater i think it's probably the world's most famous surfer and he just said that surfing is is a it it's a club and you're in it if you surf and there's no membership requirements you're just part of it if you engage in that and sailing is the same if you're a sailor you're accepted by other sailors and in the same way you know there's so many different aspects to sailing there's people that live on board full-time there's people that race obsessively there's people that just potter around in little boats but there's a there's enough kind of commonality in everyone that sails for everyone to be included and one analogy that I trot out that probably makes it difficult for non-sailors to understand um, but any sailor will get this, that, you know, I can, we can sail into an anchorage anywhere in the world, or so anyone can sail into an anchorage anywhere in the world. And the boat, the, there can be like 50 boats in that, in, in that anchorage. I can literally row up to another boat, knock on the hull and uh, just say to someone I've never before, can you lend me a spanner or, you know, insert what I need and they'll give you it. And they will just, no questions asked. I say, just bring it back when you're done. And that is universal in sailing. We sailed just about all halfway around the world. We sailed just about every continent in the world. And this kind of cohesion that holds us all together is something that I've never found outside of, of sailing. You know, if you were to, you know, well, you know, you know, you if you were to, you know, if you're from witness, you know, you go knocking on a door at 10 o'clock at night and ask to borrow a span and see what happens. Um, you know, it there's it doesn't work like that, does it? You know, you <laughs> Um, so it, it, there are there's a different sense of community just to pre-warn you a lot of these questions are going to be more funny and educational for the people that are listening because <laughs> when, when <laughs> YouTube is like right well you work together you collaborate with other YouTubers that's why I, I pictured like bumping boats and like getting to know each other and, and stuff like that so does, does, does that ever actually happen or am I making that up 
Well, bumping boats probably is not something the insurance companies want to hear about, but there are, I mean, look, in, in the kind of the whole niche of sailing, there are lots of places in the world where we have met up with friends. You know, uh, we, we, when we, I mean, for instance, when we crossed the Atlantic Ocean, you know, the first time, we met all our friends on the other side. Again, we all kind of like sailed our own ways. And a lot of the time, the circuit, you know, all these places, whether you're sailing the Caribbean, whether you're sailing Europe, there's a lot of people um, in your locality that you will meet. And so we do get in touch with each other. And even within the YouTube sailing um, kind of circle, we all meet up with each other when we can, boat shows and other kind of like social media events. I, do, I, I genuinely had an image of like bumping into each other. And uh, I was I was kind of praying I was wrong because it just makes for a very uninteresting conversation now. But uh, <laughs> it, it stands to read. And it's like, do you... Do you have like Wi-Fi on the boat? Because you mentioned that you keep in touch and you go to other events and do you have to go to land to coordinate this stuff and edit the episodes or do you do all of that? Are you able to like do what everything that you do, do you do it all on the boat? Yes, we can do everything on the boat, but it's not always easy and it sometimes requires a lot of planning ahead. Um, when we are within sight of land so when we're kind of within a country then we normally um buy a local sim card just like you would when you're kind of traveling in more traditional ways so that's generally how we get our internet um we do have satellite communications but they're very expensive so we only use that when we're at, at sea and need to get kind of weather um you know and let our mums know that we're okay that kind of thing generally speaking we wait until we are not kind of physically on land, but within a country to um, to get, you know, local internet. But, yeah, a lot of things need uh, some advanced planning. So, you know, we, for example, upload all of our um, or we back up all of our um, footage to the cloud so that, you know, we don't have to worry about, you know, hard disks getting wet or whatever. But that takes a huge amount of internet and so we need to kind of plan that and it's not easy to find super fast wi-fi in a lot of the countries that we've been to so yeah there's kind of things that we when we are remote and we don't have that kind of um those kind of connections and we don't have the communications and we take advantage of that time by filming and by creating content and by just enjoying you know the isolation um, we can certainly edit on the boat so all the editing can still go ahead and then when we are somewhere that perhaps has, you know, extra facilities and, and better communications, then we take advantage and we do all of our uploading and um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it, it's kind of, you just have to take advantage of whatever situation you're in. I'm dying to know if you've ever tried to do something on the boat and you've hit like rough water and you started like doing this, like side to side while doing it and you start sort of like, this is a lot harder than it would be if I was at a desk. <laughs> Uh, trying to figure out how to do yeah every day <laughs> yeah that's our lives that, that, that you that, just described yeah, 24 hours a day that's that's exactly what we do that's amazing oh that's so many questions um <laughs> does it ever get samey with the content does it because if you're doing like i mean a boat's a boat i'm imagining so like the how-to stuff there might be a limit somewhere i'm picturing that there's a limit um with the the other content 
I don't know, like, do you, like, plan ahead in terms of, right, we're going here in a week or two, what can we do on the build-up to it content-wise, what can we, so, do you, because when you edit, I'm imagining you compress, like, a week's worth of boat stuff, for want of a better word, into, like, one video that might last, like, an hour and a half, so how long do you record for, and then it ends up as a video. So how long is each video actually in terms of like recording time? So I think, I mean, when we first started, I think there's a lot to unpack in what you've asked. I'll answer it backwards. When we first started off, we probably come about two hours of footage for about 15 minutes. 15 minutes. I've got a little bit more efficient now that we film more, we film better and more efficiently. So probably we, you know, we don't have to film as much to get the episodes. Um, what I would say about does it get samey, which I think was what you asked initially, the way a lot of people ask this, actually, and the way I probably can explain it best to people that don't run YouTube channels is that I guess, say, for instance, if you take your favorite box set or your favorite TV series, that runs as a story arc. And when that's finished, it's done. So whether you're watching, I don't know, Game of Thrones or anything like that, there's a story arc and that's done. And you can't really revisit that because the, 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 what you're looking at is a story. If you're watching, you know, something which is a travel show or David Attenborough documentary, again, it's a story that runs, you know, for a period of time, 12 episodes, and then it's done. However, I mean, assuming, you know, most people listening to this will have parents that will probably be watching soap operas. Now, I don't watch soap operas, but, you know, I go home, you know, once a year to see my parents in London. And time and time again, my mother will be watching Coronation Street and it's the same actors that were there 30 years ago doing the same stuff that they've always done. And I'm like, that. what is going on here? Like the storyline is exactly the same. So I think from our point of view, we you invest in the characters of the people and the people the people are us so um it's kind of a perpetual kind of you know revolving door of different experiences that we encounter because we're always changing location and that gives us a lot of content i feel we do see a lot of you know we follow up other a lot of other youtube channels that some of them are much bigger than us you know peter mckinnon for instance that the ones that review like camera equipment um or they're reviewing tech they must find it very difficult to, to continually make content because their content is limited by what they have to review. Um, you know, Pete McKinnon's doing pretty well with five and a half million subscribers. But, <laughs> yeah, he's managing. but the point is we have an almost infinite supply of content because we can just move the boat. Yeah, and, and what we um, what you asked before about how kind of how many days do we film for to get an episode? I mean, our episodes these days are about 20 minutes. We try and make them at least 20 minutes. Um, so between 20 and 25 minutes usually. And they normally encompass, I would say, two or three days of our lives, sometimes up to a week. And I mean, Nick kind of, I think was a little bit misleading before he said, you know, two hours footage gets you about 15 minutes, but that was back in when we were, you know, just starting out. Yep. And and now I don't know how much, how many hours of footage. I think that probably it might be around four or five if you were to kind of string it all together and just like let it play. Um, and, you know, that condenses down to 25 minutes, but I like to think that it tells a much richer, more dynamic story. Yep. 
um, when you're kind of telling, you know, kind of, a, and every episode needs, as Nick said, its own arc. So you need, at the end of the day, we're storytellers, you need a beginning, middle and an end. You need to actually tell a story. And happily, when you're sailing, there is a natural story arc because, you know, you leave at the beginning of the episode, you leave where, wherever it is that you were, you sail to a place, you get there and you explore and then that's the end of the episode. So there are, you know, we find it relatively easy to tell those stories. And, I mean, you know, Aaron Sorkin, I remember, said once that a story is not kind of going from A to B and that's the story. The story is going from A to B but there being an obstacle between the two places that you have to overcome. So the best stories are the experiences that are probably the worst for us, but they, they make the best um, viewing experience and they're the best in terms of the story, um, which are when when we have a challenge that we need to overcome and, and the very nature of our lifestyle means that that happens relatively often actually. So yeah, we're never short of content, yeah. that's for sure. Would you ever base your destination on the fact that you're recording it. So you've got this sort of, I wouldn't say pressure, but you would sit there and go, right, we'll go here because that'll be something that's a bit interesting, a bit different. We've only been here a couple of times. Or do you literally just go and record it and then you decide whether or not to upload it or edit it? No, we are pretty organised when it comes to filming. So to answer the last part of your question first, we if we film something, then we almost always know as we're doing it that it's going to end up in our episode in one way or another. Um, it might not take kind of precedence, but it will appear some in some way. But in terms of deciding on essentially how to organise our lives and where to go and what to do um, and how that would affect our content, there are, there are two kind of issues at play because on the one hand, you're absolutely right. You know, for example, there are a lot of the YouTube sailing, I know that you're not into YouTube sailing channels, but it's actually a very saturated market. Um, there's not many people who are, when you look at kind of the total number of people on YouTube who, who look at YouTube videos, the number of people on that platform who are actually interested in sailing channels is relatively small, um, although it is growing all the time actually um, and it's getting bigger and bigger kind of with every passing week and month but the number of channels that are on the platform kind of really exceeds the demand so you have a really saturated market so what you have is a lot of channels who are starting out in a certain locality and it's often kind of American channels starting out perhaps on the east coast or going to the Bahamas and and kind of filming what they're doing and so what you have is a lot of content from certain locations in the world certain geographical locations so the Bahamas for example you know there are so many sailing channels who have been based in the Bahamas we've been based in the Bahamas um, historically and so you have no shortage of content if you're interested in Bahamas sailing but so that therefore that I mean, at the end of the day, we do what we want because we, you know, we do what we want to do because it's our lives. But we would perhaps think, okay, do we go to the Bahamas or do we maybe go somewhere that is less popular, where less people have sailed before um, and make content out of that because it might be of, you know, we're, we're, we want to offer something different and interesting. And we've always kind of thought like that. And on the one hand, it's a bit of a risk because, 
if you're doing something different, then perhaps people aren't as interested in what you're doing. But on the other hand, you know, there are always people who are going to be looking for something else. And over the last couple of years, we we did take a bit of a risk, although we had to, you know, we sailed Ruby Rose um, from the Mediterranean um, back to the UK uh, via the French canals. We took our sailing boat through the French canals, which is quite unusual, and then through, like uh, south and north Brittany um, in France. And I think we're the only sailing channel who've actually sailed that area certainly we're one of only a few who've done the French canals before and it was a little bit nerve-wracking because we thought how is this going to be received by our audience we've been in the Caribbean for years and that's what they expect and now we're suddenly going through the French canals and sailing you know a relatively um I mean for the Brits northern France is is you know a well-trodden path but for the Americans the Americans make up the vast majority of our audience it's kind of not really on their radar um and yeah, it's been really fantastic, the the kind of reaction to the places that we've been going to, people saying, I never would have thought about going there before. And now, you know, I've watched this episode and I now I have to go there. It just looks amazing. So, yeah, that's a very long-winded answer to that question. But, yeah, it's complicated. That's all right. I mean, it, it's always worth shedding more of a light on it because uh, as content creators, it's so easy to to bend, I guess to what other people want you to do and you've always got to find that balance it's never it's never always clear cut it's never always uh, I'll just do whatever I feel like it because if, if it's your full-time job which yours is you know you've got to have a level of maintenance otherwise you've got to think of how else you're going to afford your lifestyle right it doesn't always work yeah. It's not as always. I'll do whatever the heck I want, and meanwhile, like you, you've got no money coming in because you're too busy doing whatever the heck you want and not doing what works. You know what works for the channel. So it's definitely a, a minefield. So thanks for thanks for being honest. You know, thanks for sharing it. It's not it's not straightforward because people often talk about, don't they, that you've got to just do what it is that you want to do and things will work out. And you know. I wish that was the case. <laughs> well, I, I have to say that that has been what we've ended up doing when we're kind of throwing up those two decisions. Do we go somewhere that we know will be more popular or do we do what we want to do? Um, it might not resonate with as many people, but it's something that we really are excited about. We've always gone for that latter option um, and we've had that kind of yeah. fork in the path a couple of times and we've always gone for that option and it's worked out for us because I think at the end of the day you have to do what makes you excited because if you're doing if you're not then you're not being authentic to yourself and that comes across in your content so that you know you have to be passionate about what you're doing and that will come across and if you're enthusiastic and passionate and you're you know having fun then people people will follow you on that journey with you. How often do you get messages of people asking how they can do what you're doing? Do you give them equipment recommendations? Do you give them like how to get started, like a travel sailing YouTube channel? Do you ever have those conversations? Yeah, like 10 times a day. <laughs> like, honestly, it's like our inbox is nuts. Um, <clears throat> we got to a point about a year ago where we were just 
unable to deal with just the, the just the, the the continual messages because everyone wants something different you know people some people have got really specific uh, asks and requests and some people have just want a generalized you know thanks very much you know we really want to do what you want to do but don't want to take it any further so kind of like you know the patreon thing um as a platform was pretty good for us because it enabled us to kind of funnel people into a certain place if they wanted specific detailed advice because firing off a quick message on facebook or instagram is easy setting up consultations for someone that wants to buy a boat is pretty time intensive it, you know it can sometimes take you know days of research and then back and forth so we have to work out the level at which people the level of information they want and unfortunately now we've got to a size where we just can't answer everyone's messages you know if you're getting you know 10 emails a day another 10 20 instagram messages another 10 or 20 facebook messages asking questions and that's that's outside of youtube you know i think you know the lot we put a youtube video out um two days ago that there's 270 comments on it and that will just keep going so you try and answer all these things so it's impossible so we have to kind of try and prioritize the answers that we give people and how detailed those answers are at one end of the spectrum as i've said is like a pretty detailed way that you can get non-professional advice from us we're not boat surveyors but we can give you opinion and at the other end we can just say look you know if you want to know how to install solar panels here's the video we made click this link or if you want to know how to start sailing click this link so and there's a lot of things in between but it, everyone's got very specific requirements i imagine it's it's almost like pulling the wool from people's eyes when you tell them the truth about what what it's actually like because people will see the youtube videos and the the week or two condensed into a half an hour video and it must look great it does look great some of the videos are amazing but then they'll watch that and go i would love to do that and then you go well actually this is the reality and then does it ever put people off when you do that no because we made it our mission statement from day one to not glamorize it, to put across the reality of the lifestyle that we have. And, you know, obviously we want to make it entertaining and we want to make it kind of watchable and funny and, you know, informative. We want people to enjoy the, the viewing experience. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we're, sh we're showing just our lifestyle and we've always, um, been very clear that it's kind of a um you know a, a very realistic look at our lifestyle we don't hold anything back do you ever ask or get asked things from each other's perspectives like well, what is it like to to run the channel or the traveling i imagine you've got roles and responsibilities yourselves when it comes to running the channel and and living your life as well do people ask you like you specifically questions whether it be yourself Teresa or or Nick as well someone go like Nick what's it really like and then like they go to Teresa and go Teresa what is it really like I think um one thing that is patently obvious is that there is a lot of pretty latent sexism in sailing so and it, I think it it happens to the point at which it's amusing people will 
99% of the time ask me technical questions. Even when we're, even when they meet us in person, they will never, they very rarely ever ask a technical question to Therese. Um, she's a very, very competent sailor, but there is just this kind of weird indoctrinated mental bias that people don't ask her the technical questions. Um, and they ask me the technical questions, yet they could argue that I'm the skipper and I am the skipper of the boat. There can only ever be one skipper on a boat. To be fair, when we put out technical content, it's normally driven by Nick because, yeah, okay, and, and this was something, this was a conscious decision that we made because um, we, I, I couldn't really keep up with the, the work um, myself. And so to give me a bit of a break, uh, you know, this was a few years ago now, we decided to kind of, um, as I said earlier, start creating more technical, informative kind of how-to episodes. And they're a little bit, there were there was something that I was able to give to Nick to do because they, they're not really as difficult um, to film or to edit. Um, I mean, he's actually become such a great editor um, now. Um, so, you know, you can kind of take it as far as you want to, but in its very basic form, it's essentially just standing in front of a camera and talking to it and then filming a little bit of B-roll. Um, so... He, I kind of gave that to him um, as his project. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of elements about um, living on a boat. As Nick said, he is the skipper. He's got a lot more experience than I do um, that he has more, um, you know, knowledge and experience on and he's able to communicate more clearly. But yeah, I mean, you know, sexism and, sexism and sailing is, you know, I wouldn't say it's latent. I'd say it's pretty, you know, overt. But um, yeah, often I, I get ignored um, and I don't get, you know, spoken to at boat shows because people go straight to Nick. And right. actually, it's quite, it is amusing because in this um, catamaran review series, that was something that we both started off, you know, on the same level because we had never looked into catamarans before. So I would say that, you know, we've, we both have a pretty good understanding of the catamaran market. And um, in fact, I'm, I was the one that did a lot of the preliminary research when we were planning a lot of those episodes. So often, Nick doesn't remember you know certain details but I I do um and I'm you know when people say well what catamaran should I buy they 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 say hey Nick what catamaran should I buy and Nick says to me hey Teresa <laughs> what catamaran should they buy yeah, it. <laughs> so yeah it's um fact of life unfortunately it's interesting that it's become amusing because you're sort of sat back watching it happen. I mean, there is bound to be a delay between them messaging you and you replying. So you must look at all the messages and go, it's funny, I'm getting all of the technical ones and you're getting all of the, the design ones. And it must be very strange to look back and go, yeah, I imagine it being pretty comical. I mean, do, do you ever get questions like, so guys asking Teresa questions, girls asking Nick questions. Is that ever, like women always go to Teresa because she's a woman as well and all the guys always go to Nick? Most, I, I would say that most of our, like I would say 95% of our questions come from couples. Hmm. Um, it's very rarely, because most people are inspired or have questions about how they as a couple can get into this life. Because the thing about sailing is, if you are sailing around the world, it's a pretty solitary pursuit. Whether you're on your own on a boat or whether you're with your wife, 
partner and boyfriend girlfriend there's either there's normally just two of you or your family and so you you make a conscious decision in sailing the distant places to cut yourself off from your entire network of friends and family directly so most people set off as couples to do this or with couples with small children or families so yeah when people come to us in their planning stages they very 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 rarely are doing this on their own Hmm. i find that a little bit more interesting than maybe the average person because mental health is quite important and you mentioned that a few times anyway you've mentioned that you've had to make conscious decisions that will perhaps like alter the rest of your life essentially whether it be cutting off from your network understanding that you're going to be isolated for long periods of time as a couple or as a family or whatever the case is do you have anything that you would suggest for people that want to get into this in terms of dealing with the lifestyle of traveling full-time as a couple um i think well, I think I'll deal with one part and I think Therese will probably deal with the other part. I think you, the first thing you said was mental health. I think we got to a point about two or three years ago when we were just juggling too many balls where it did actually start to affect my mental health to the point at which I just, I, we just got burnout. Um, and that was literally because we had to learn to communicate in a different way. Um, we were sailing very fast. We were doing a lot of miles, constantly working on the boat putting ourselves under a lot of pressure to get to certain locations. And in addition to that, we suddenly had this fledgling YouTube channel that suddenly demanded a lot of attention, which we just didn't know how to, we just had to create an extra 20 to 40 hours in the week to kind of nurse this channel. And it came out of nowhere and neither of us really kind of communicated to the other that we were finding it difficult and it, we, it, when we got to, we sailed into Charleston in America, uh, in, in South Carolina, and literally sat down and thought, you know, neither of us are happy. Like, what is it? This is meant to be the dream that we're living and we're not, you know, we're both pretty miserable. What is it? And we just, you know, I've, I always say that a boat is like a very needy five-year-old. You're constantly having to look after it. You know, it, it's demanding, you know, it, you know, if you take your eye off the ball, it will, you know, shit itself and kind of like, you know, rub it all up the walls. You know, you're literally at that kind of level. So um, we kind of left it alone for three months. We literally just left the boat for three months, sat down, said, look, what do we want to do? Do do we want to continue with what we're doing? And we both said, yeah, we don't want to give this up. And I think once we worked out that we needed to communicate to say, look, actually, this is, this is pretty hard. Uh, what we're doing we need to kind of work slightly differently and learn how to manage our time better it all be after that it became really really easy yeah I think that um, time management and um, communication was big for us I think that you know anyone who uh, goes from living on land to living on a boat is going to have a big adjustment um, because for lots of reasons but um one is you're downsizing and you're going from living in a fairly um, static situation where, you know, your house is always where you left it. And you, if you turn the light on, then you'll always, you know, get the light coming on and you'll always have water and electricity. And, um, you know, you, you can kind of go to bed every night and not have to worry about anything 
kind of changing overnight. Um, whereas when you're living on a boat, everything is very dynamic and you just always need to be very flexible. You know, a number of times we've been woken up in the middle of the night and, you know, had to move or, you know, storms come in and we had to move or, um, you know, something on the boat has um, has has broken or been damaged. Um, you know, for example, we were in an island in the Caribbean and our water pump broke and suddenly we couldn't get any fresh water out of the tanks. So we literally had no water. We couldn't get water out of our taps. Um, so, you know, it's just this constant uh, state of anticipating what the next thing that could go wrong will be, how you're going to fix it and uh, having like all these backup systems on the boat. Um, so you have to, you know, be of a certain mindset, you have to have a certain attitude in order to deal with that kind of constant state of change. And that's very easy to do when you're feeling positive and happy and everything's going well. When you are feeling isolated, when you are, um, you know, disconnected from your usual support network, so your friends and family, when you feel like you don't have anyone to talk to, when you feel like the only other person that you um, have in your life at that time, you know, there's a lack of communication between the two of you. Um, there might be a lot of other issues at play. You might be stressed about money. You know, all of these things can play into you having a less than positive experience. And so I think kind of preparing for that in advance, that is something that is very important. Um, I've, we've spoken a lot previously about how we feel like it's very important for particularly couples who come onto the boat, particularly when there's an imbalance in the experience level and the skill level between the couple, for both of them to, particularly the less experienced person, to kind of work out a way of contributing equally to the lifestyle, being equally um, involved in all the decisions that are made because some of them aren't easy decisions, you know, getting up in the middle of the night and moving somewhere and, you you know, you're in an unfamiliar location and you know the wind is howling and it's shooting down with rain and you just think geez I'd just rather like be anywhere but here right now so yeah it can be a very challenging lifestyle but um I think that you know with the right tools and particularly with good communication and um, a balanced kind of approach to things then you can definitely um, overcome those those difficulties and, and certainly that's the adjustment you know we started off living on land and when then we had to have this adjustment when we went, moved onto the boat and now you know we've been living on board for five years and um, we wouldn't have it any other way it's, it's absolutely not something that we would ever give up. How long did it take for you to be okay with the whole situation because if you've gone from being on land to being on the boat, I imagine you prepared for it, you planned for it, you predicted some of it, but how long did it take for you to get used to being on a boat and then growing this whole self-reliance mindset and being essentially independent and being able to solve things and rely on yourself a bit more? I think we always knew we could be independent. It was never a question of whether we could do it. I think it's a little bit like uh, theoretically knowing how to wire a plug. You know, you know how to do it if you've never done it before. Now that we've been living on board for five years, I know that almost invariably, no matter what problem is thrown at us, we can fix it. It doesn't, even if, I even if I've never done it before, if we've never tackled it before, 
we probably will be able to do something to to get ourselves out of strife. And, and I think also when we left, I was not particularly experienced um, as a sailor um, or as like a boat person because there's more to it than just the actual sailing part of it. Um, and I think that with the last five years, obviously my experience of all has increased hugely. Um, so I think Nick feels less like yeah. he's the only person who can problem solve now. You know, now I think we're both in it together and we can both, you know, kind of tackle these challenges together. And, and obviously that, you know, helps hugely. So, yeah. And it took us, I think the other part of your question was, getting into the groove of this life. I think the transition, even with all our preparation, probably took us the best part of a year. I I think it took us about a year to work out how to slow down, stop rushing around and stop trying to take certain aspects of our life on land, you know, into our sailing lives. You know, we literally, we didn't have a timeframe on what we were doing. So why were we rushing so much? It's a very interesting point when you bring up that it took a year to really sort of get into the groove of it because a lot of people might think that's a long time but then you brought up living similarly and having to teach yourself to slow down a little bit so what did you think would have been like lifestyle wise did you try to take something from land onto the boat when it didn't work so you had to adjust it what was that sort of scenario like i guess i always found it difficult to kind of work out why it took so long for us to slow down but okay maybe if i frame this in a different way to myself and if i could go back five years and have a chat to myself if i'd gone from say working in you know, the city of London as a dentist. And instead of doing that, I'd moved to the Isle of Skye and bought a farm and I wanted to become a sheep farmer. How long would it have taken me to get into that lifestyle? How long would that transition have taken? To me, mentally, for me to take a year to get into that would be, you know, I, I could get my head around that. However, for some reason, there's this kind of, because we used to sail at weekends, I think I thought it was going to be faster. Whereas in fact, the whole lifestyle transition um, took a lot longer. And the thing that you asked is, what was it that you took? I think the one number one was the speed at which we were running our lives in London. Mm. You know, literally everything was like, go, go, go. And when we did our first year of sailing, we left London and literally, you know, sailed down the whole coast of Europe into Morocco, across the Atlantic, half around the Caribbean, back up the Caribbean. And, you know, we, we were just literally putting in sea miles, just covering some crazy distances when we never needed to do that. And I think that that was putting us under a lot of undue pressure. And I think as soon as we slowed down and realized that we didn't have to be anywhere, we could just, that, that, that's when everything changed. And it took a year for us to get into that. Do you have any stories of something that you try, you know, like square peg in a round hole where you tried to make it work within that first year? Maybe, maybe it's a bit different because you're on a boat, so you don't have a whole lot of, space to try to do something that you would have done on land i mean like my first instinct is well, you can't ride a bike on a boat right so when you try to keep yourself fit and healthy on a boat and you try to ride a bike on a boat it's not going <laughs> to end well so is, is there anything that you think of where you tried to make it fit on a boat um when you know you it's not going to work 
I think that we didn't just go from living in London to being on a boat. We did a couple of transitions. So we did kind of like, we used to sail every weekend. We used to go on holidays for, you know, we'd take a week, go sailing. But in the two years before we left, we took six weeks off uh, both summers to see what it would be like so that we did have some idea of whether we could do it because it was a big risk, you know, because we could have gone back to our lives in London if it hadn't worked out. But honestly, you know, never go backwards unless you have to. So I don't think there's anything that, you know, we found out we, you know, we tried to make do something that we couldn't do. I think we had a pretty good idea of what we, of our limitations. I think it was just about slowing down that, that, that we needed to do to make, you know, to make, ourselves happier yeah i agree yeah just me and my crazy sense of humor picturing you trying to like ride a bike on a, a boat and we do have bikes on we've got bikes on the boat all right you you've before we move you've got to explain how just riding a circle how <laughs> big's this boat no it's definitely not big enough to do laps well, on. the thing about it is that you know um from our point of view um when you're at anchor, you normally go to a port and sometimes to go and get food, a supermarket can be a couple of miles away. So having a, having a bike is what you need to put your food on. So literally it was like, you know, we'd put the bikes into the dinghy, take the dinghy ashore, cycle to a supermarket, come back, put, you know, so that's what the, the bikes weren't used for cycling around the, the deck. Bike, the deck. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? No idea, mate. <laughs> Drugs. <laughs> I didn't I think it would be your transport because of the okay boat okay yeah get it but you don't live in Venice <laughs> you know how are you going to get by on the roads yeah sorry about sorry. that I'll have to uh <laughs> you could tell how fascinated I am because you're answering, you're answering and I'm like that <laughs> like a kid it isn't how you're able to make it work and how you're able to sort of fit everything in I'm going to move on a little bit to the whole YouTube thing because you started the channel, it's now going really well, but you're living on a boat for the most part. I know you mentioned you had Wi-Fi and sometimes you would dock somewhere to to do all of those things, but did you have to build in some kind of system to be able to not just put the videos up, because anyone can put videos on YouTube, but to actually grow the channel and get it in front of more people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's not just about pressing that upload button and going for it. It's it's a constant kind of um, reevaluation of what isn't isn't working and how to improve things. And not only that, but doing all your social media marketing, all your digital marketing. Um, you know, obviously the the filming and the editing and the publication and the marketing of those that particular video is one strand but there's a lot that goes into it there's all of the administration side of things there is the patreon side of things uh, running the patreon platform and then there's also the business side which is about kind of um, dealing with collaborations and sponsorships and networking and kind of looking into partnerships and that kind of thing so there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes I think that's worth staying on a little bit because there is a big difference between one a YouTube channel on land, if you're a fitness channel or whatever the case is, it's a different story compared to 
but we live on a boat. How on earth do we fit all of this in? So do you do it just on land or do you run it from the boat as well? And I guess I'm going to ask another stupid question now, but have you ever had like say, because I imagine there were like blind spots with like internet connection yeah. and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, to... yeah, some places have better connectivity than others. Um, but as I said before, you know, we just buy local SIM cards. And if we are within range, which we are, I mean, you know, you're not, when you say you kind of live on a boat, that doesn't mean you're living out at sea. It means that you're kind of anchored off a, a harbour or a beach or, you know, you're in an anchorage. So you are close to everything. Um, so, you know, we have the same connectivity as any other person living yeah. in that country or on that island or whatever. So it really hasn't been an issue for us um, yet. I mean, at some point, you know, when we go to more remote areas, then it will become a little bit more patchy and we'll just have to, as I said before, like plan ahead and make sure that, you know, we have um, plenty of redundancy built in and that we aren't, you know, we, we've got loads of content uploaded and we might have to recruit someone on land with good internet to kind of keep everything, keep an eye on everything while we're, um, you know, while we are offline, but it's really not, you know, you're very connected at the end of the day. You are very yeah, connected. Yeah, it's not a problem. Yeah, I, I suppose it's, it's one of those situations where if you've got enough videos built up over time, You've got a bit of a, a lag, if you will, between the content that you're busy creating and the videos that the public see. It's almost like similar thing with, right. with podcasting. You're like six months worth of the videos. I'm not saying yeah. you want to go that far, but if you've got six months worth and then you upload them in like a day or two or three, depending on how many videos that is, then you go, right, we've got six months done or three months done. Have a little yeah. bit of a brief. We always try and have about a month of buffer. I think that's one thing that living on a boat has given us. So we're always at least three to four weeks, um, you know, ahead of schedule. And that gives us time to sail around and, you know, it, deal with internet black spots. Yeah, it, it just makes sense. You, you find a way of, of making it work, right? You find yeah. a way, you kind of built your life and then the YouTube works around it as opposed to the other way around. Yeah. Uh, it, is there anything that you could share with people when it comes to growing YouTube channels? What have you found that actually works when it comes to building the, the audience of your channel? I think that the best advice I can give is if you are getting into it to make money, then you probably won't be as successful as someone getting into it out of a passion for storytelling for creating video, for creating content, someone who actually feels that they have something to contribute to the platform. Um, so I think that there are a lot of people who see YouTube as an easy way of making a little bit of money. But for us, it took us about three years of full-time work before we got any kind of income. So, you know, you think about it, are you willing to give up three years of full-time work for zero money? Um, obviously people get lucky. Um, and a lot of people are a lot less lucky than we are. And after many, many years, they're still not getting any yeah. real income. So I say get into it for the love of what you do, not for money. Yep. Do you have anything in particular to, to add to that, Nick? No, it was the same principle we kind of like had in dentistry that 
if you chase pounds, you'll never make any money. And if you, but if you provide quality, you 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 will the money tends to follow. And I think you have to be true to yourself. I think people, especially nowadays, when you're kind of throwing something on the internet, which is essentially a, a vision of, you know, you're showing your life. If you're false and you would come across as false, people see through it. So you have to be true to yourself and show your personality. And it feeds back into something I said before that people, you know, if you're watching EastEnders, whether you're watching Phil Mitchell or, you know, whoever the hell is, is in it now, people buy into their personalities. Um, and so you do have to have a personality that people can either relate to or dislike or like or find funny, but there has to be something, there has to be a hook to what you give your audience that and, keeps them coming back. And that comes through in the editing and the filmmaking yeah. as well. And like Nick said, he refer referenced, you know, some YouTubers before, but I feel like Casey Neistat is one of the more famous YouTubers and he's a great example of his personality coming across in his edit. You know, you watch one of his videos and it is he's got such a strong voice just from his videography and his editing. Yep. So I think that that's another way of inserting some kind of, you know, personality into the, yep. the content as well. It's an interesting point that you brought up, actually, and something that just came to my mind is you can edit out the personality <laughs> in some way. You, you know, if you... If, <laughs> If you're so a lot of people think about being yourself and being authentic and something that people can relate to. There are things that people can relate to, like mistakes and messing up and I'm having a good time and doing all those things that if you look at the video, we'd be like, well, is it, do we keep that in? So you can, do we... you can sanitize on a, a, lo a lot of channels outside of sailing, within sailing, sanitize what they do so they portray a, a perfect lifestyle. We choose to leave all the gritty stuff in and it's worked for our channel. Yeah, I think that there's something to, there's something very endearing about having an unpolished um, lifestyle pro product, you know, video. Like, you know, it needs to have those raw, genuine moments in it as well. And, and we've always tried to keep that in it while still kind of, you know, having a, an overall, um, you know, viewing experience that people really enjoy watching. Yeah, I, I would completely echo that. I think it's always worth showing that side of it as well, which speaks to why you've chosen Patreon as your platform of choice as well, because people are paying to support you. What sort of things do people get for that in comparison to the channel like what how did you decide where the line was between what people get in the channel versus what you give your patrons so again the, the patron decision wasn't something that came easy to us we actually decided to launch patreon then actually put it on hold for i think a year after the decision and I think we didn't actually launch Patreon until we had 40,000 subscribers. Yeah. And we didn't even monetize our YouTube channel until we had 20,000. So the reason that we did it was because at the time, Therese was doing digital marketing, you know, online for other companies. And really, we were making income from other strands of work online. So we kind of got to a point where it was like, well, do we now commit to this YouTube channel and invest in it financially? And if so we are going to have to raise more money, you know, more than, than YouTube providers. YouTube income is not high. It's not, you know, 
when you're starting off. And even now it's, it doesn't form even, you know, the, a significant part of our income stream. So we launched it for that. What our patrons get, depending on the tiering system, they get access to us, messaging services. There's the whole Patreon platform. We have a WhatsApp group. They get meet and greets. They get, you know, live feeds. They get discounts on merchandise. They get to meet us in for meetups. They get, um, you know, as we get the new boat, they'll, you know, get the opportunity to kind of like come sailing with us. So there's a lot of different things at different tiers. But really... You know, and this is it's a nuanced line. They're not supporting our life. They're supporting our filmmaking. And the reason I say that is because we kind of came to this as, you know, we'd already done our thing with our careers. But filmmaking is a full time occupation and it does take a hell of a lot of work. You know, Teresa is editing 40, 60 hours a week. I'm putting a similar amount of time into the other aspects of the business. And that's outside of filming and sailing. You know, and the amount of money that it sucks up is is pretty incredible. I think, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. Like when we first started our YouTube channel, our first camera was a $300 Sony that we bought in Singapore. Um, and that was what we were filmed with for that, for a whole year. You know, we bought a filter for our camera about a month ago that was more the cost of our first camera, just a piece of glass that goes on the front of the lens. So you know, in delivering content that we're proud of, we've had to, we, we put, you know, crazy amounts of money into equipment and education. And then it's laptops and lighting rigs and all the other bits that go with it. So we couldn't do that without, you know, the financial backing of, of our patrons. I'm actually really glad that you share things like that. Because when, when it boils down to it, there's a lot more that goes in than some might realize that the the fact that you deliver a top quality video that that comes with a lot of work it comes with a lot of expenses it comes with a lot of time and in some ways more people will watch you and tune in and enjoy it and find it helpful and valuable because of that as well so you've got the uh, it's almost like everything is better including the videos that they love and enjoy because of what you invest in each one. And it's almost like it gives you the ability to do that. You know, like the, the more you yeah, can put absolutely. in, better you'll you'll get, but then yeah. you need it to put in as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, it's about investing in, in your equipment and investing in yourself and your time. You have to make that initial investment and then you, you know, you hope that it pays off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Right, here we go. Last couple of questions, promise. If you could boil it down to say three things, three things that either you wish you knew or three things that you wish people that got started knew um, about not just sailing, but deciding to go down the YouTube rabbit hole, what would you suggest these people do? Um, do you want me to answer sailing or yeah, you YouTube? Answer sailing and I'll answer YouTube. Yeah. 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 We'll do that. Okay. okay the sailing thing. Uh, let me just th three things. Number one, the biggest obstacle after not having the money or not having the ability because you've got, you know, parents or kids is the biggest obstacle is yourself because you will throw up your own barriers to stop you doing it. That's number one. Number two, um, it is hard. 
and it's you you need to educate yourself and so youtube watching youtube sailors it's not easy and don't get complacent because it, 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 it is there is a risk inherent in sailing so i do think that i would like to put across there's lots of ways of getting yourself training you know for very little money Second, and the third thing, which I think is the most important thing, is genuinely and without any bullshit aside, this is the best thing we've ever done. Like, without, you know, if I could think, you know, 110 when I'm lying on my deathbed surrounded by strippers and kind of like, you know, whatever's going on, and I have to look back on the single best thing that I've done uh, in my life, it was deciding to leave and actually leaving. Yeah, and in terms of YouTube, I don't know if I can come up with um, three things, but I definitely think that we've touched on the most important one already, which is that um, you have to go into it with the passion for making content first and foremost. If you go into it trying to like become famous or be, like, well, you know, semi-famous or um, to earn loads of money, then you're going to fail because A, people see right through that and B, your expectations are just, not going to meet up with reality it, it doesn't work like that you just you know don't kind of start earning money from the very beginning you have to invest years um plus usually quite a lot of money and equipment before you can get that return um i wish that we had started that being said i wish that we had started uh filming our experiences from the very beginning um and that's kind of just a personal thing because we didn't start the youtube channel until we'd been on the boat for about 18 months and it that was because it wasn't just just wasn't on my radar to be honest when we left I felt like we had so much going on that I didn't have you know the time in the day to dedicate to kind of launching a YouTube channel at the same time but looking back I wish that we had because we had just the most amazing you know experiences over those first 12 months um it was a real roller coaster and we did our first Atlantic crossing and none of that got documented unfortunately not on video I kept a blog as I said but wasn't it wasn't filmed so I wish that I had done that and um other than that I think that you know tapping into the community that exists is I think the probably the most important thing that you can do um as a creator and connecting with your fellow creatives and kind of looking for that support and um, advice and you know kind of reaching out and just because it can feel like you're kind of just swimming upstream a lot of the time and um, you know getting that support from others is really important as well. Yeah I think that's that's definitely worth it for people you know to really learn and really take home whether it's a, a reality for people or just reaffirming you know, because some people go in with an idea and some people just need somebody like yourself to reaffirm something that they think and just have that permission, you know, to go ahead and, and do it. Some people question themselves quite a lot. And, you know, having you two on to share that, even if people already agree, you know, it's like, right, that means I can do it then. You know, it's kind of like just that, re yeah. that, that reaffirming that perhaps some of the, the listeners might need. So, Thanks for being a guest. Those of you that are listening. Thank you so much, Mike. Do subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. Before we go, Nick, Teresa, how can people check out your YouTube channel? So it's really easy. Our YouTube channel is called Sailing Ruby Rose. And we are also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, also under Sailing Ruby Rose. So fairly straightforward. Just, just search for it. Mm -hmm.
Awesome. Well, again, thank you for being a guest and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Cheers.